I'm in a position where I cannot be afraid. What, what I do for a living, my life, my career, I have to get out there and be among the people. And if I'm not comfortable doing that, I can't expect my runners to be comfortable doing that. But I think it's going to be a job that every single one of us has to take on headfirst. And we have to figure out, does this race saying they're going to have gloves, hand sanitizer, masks, temperature, gauges, you know, all these things, does that make me feel safe? And if not, anyone who's listening, (laughs) you have got to speak up and tell us what is going to make you feel safe. Because as a person who is in charge of branding at the New York City Marathon finish line, it's a really special thing. And it is the world's largest marathon. It's 51,000 people. It is a sight. It is a feeling. I get goosebumps talking about it. And if that has to go away because we're we're afraid of people, that's going to be a really sad day. You know, it just is. That's Michelle LaSala. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Michelle Lasala. Michelle is the founder and president of Blistering Pace Race Management, where she puts on races in and around the Bay Area and also serves in various capacities at bigger races around the country. A 15-year running industry veteran, she's worked for the LA Marathon, New York Roadrunners, and Sacramento Running Association, where she was the race director for the California International Marathon in 2013 and 14. Michelle has been running since the third grade. She competed collegiately at the University of Portland, and she's completed 32 marathons with a 259 personal best. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation from how Michelle got her start in the sport, dealing with disordered eating and injuries as a collegiate athlete, and what sparked her competitive resurgence after college. She told me how Bart Yasso and a bizarre chance led her to getting a job at the LA Marathon, kicking off her career in the running industry. We talked about putting on events, why she does it, and the worst day she's ever had as a race director. And lastly, we discussed her experience putting on a large event the first weekend of March earlier this year, just as COVID concerns were starting to escalate what things look like for her right now with no races and an uncertain future ahead of us, her thoughts on how events might look different moving forward, and what she wants to tell runners who have had their races canceled or postponed due to the pandemic. This is a long one, folks, but it's packed with good stories and important information. So let's dive right into it with Michelle LaSala. Michelle Asawa, I know who you are. I'm well aware of what you do, but many of my listeners may not be. So why don't we just start with a little introduction and tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to get the opportunity to chat today. Um, I am, I I guess, a runner first and foremost, uh, who stumbled my way into the running industry about 15 years ago. And it, it has been pure bliss ever since. (laughs) Um, I started running with my dad when I was in third grade and um, kind of 
became a love affair from there. Um, I ran track in cross country in high school and then went on to run division one at University of Portland. Um, I've run, I think, 32 marathons and two ultras. Um, and now I just kind of feel like an old lady. Uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that it, along the way I have kind of transitioned um, from a runner into more of that behind the scenes race director, race management kind of thing where uh, it might not be as fast anymore and I might not get to run the mileage I used to but I can still be kind of fully immersed and involved um, in running the way that I want to be in the way that I love to be and uh, support, you know, support people more than support my own running nowadays. We're going to talk quite a bit about the race directing side of things, but I'd love to go back to the beginnings. And when you started running with your dad, what are some of your earliest memories of running with him? Um, so actually before running with my dad, it was biking with my dad when he would go running. And, um, when I was a kid, I remember that my dad was a smoker. Um, he, his brother, my uncle was a, um, semi-pro baseball player. And so my dad helped to train his brother, um, with baseball. And so he was always pretty athletic but never a runner by trade by any stretch of the imagination. And I think just in some way, as he was getting older, decided, you know, to kind of get healthy or stay healthy or be healthier, um, stop smoking and took up running. And so when he first started running, it was just kind of a three mile loop a couple nights a week after work. And I would ride my bike with him. And I had a pink banana seat bicycle. (laughs) Um, And I would ride with my dad while he ran. And then ultimately, uh, at some point in third grade, uh, my dad decided that he was going to run a 5k. And he thought that I could do it as well. It was called the Christmas Wish Run. And um, we started training, quote unquote, for that. And what that looks like was that my dad would run ahead of me and then he would loop back far behind me and then he would come back past me and go ahead again. Um, So while I ran, you know, three miles, he was running like five or whatever. Um, And so we did that 5K. We didn't run it together. I ran it by myself um, and I ran it in 27 minutes and change. And that was kind of the jumping off point. Um, and then I joined my elementary school track team in fourth grade. Um, and then it just kind of went from there. Then high school, it was cross country and track. And then in college, kind of much of the same. Um, but I remember at some point in college, um, really just feeling like I was itching toward getting into the longer stuff. I was never that fast. So I knew that kind of the marathon was was going to be it for me. Um, and so I couldn't wait to do that. And I ran my first marathon. It um, was actually the San Francisco Marathon in 2001. Back to that first 5K, what do you remember feeling during it and then when you crossed the finish line? Um, I wish that I could say that I had some, 
you know, out of body experience or it was so difficult for me and I just, you know, dragged myself across the line. Um, but I just kind of remember feeling like I could run three miles. Um, I, you know, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a a very short (laughs) and small person. Um, and so I just kind of felt like running was always in my wheelhouse. Um, certainly wasn't wasn't at the blistering pace that my my race company is named after, um, but I could do it. You know, I could just kind of plod along and get it done. Um, I remember being excited about finishing because the loop that my dad and I would run, where he would run further than me, um, was three miles. And I remember as we were kind of building up, I did that three mile loop in twenty nine minutes, and then when we did the five k. Um, my time was 27 something. So I was like, okay, you know, just shaving the minutes off (laughs) back when you could shave minutes at a time off of a 5k. (laughs) And was that in itself exciting to you to see your time over this distance get faster and faster? For sure. And I'm a really competitive person. Um, so I think that was definitely a carrot for me was to see, see the progress in those minutes. Were you competitive from a very early age or is that something that developed as you got older? Um, that's, you know, I think if I have to think about it, I think that's been a development. Um, when I was on the elementary school track team, I don't remember having a competitive edge really at all. <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm out here on this dirt track running a mile. You know, that was the longest distance that they had. Um, and I remember that I broke seven minutes in eighth grade. Um, and that was not because I was being competitive against the other girls out there. That was just because, you know, that's what I was able to do. Um, I don't remember pushing myself super hard to do that. Not that I was lazy about it, but um, I think definitely my competitive edge has come out, I would say even post-collegiately. I really kind of had like a second second birth into running um, when I was about 30. Uh, And I feel like a lot of that competitive edge came from that time forward um, and certainly crossed over into my career and kind of the way I live my life now too. I hate to skip over too much, but what sparked that resurgence in competitiveness post-collegiately for you? Um, so in college, I, like I said, I went to University of Portland and we had a really great women's team. And um, it was at the time in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where um, there was just a lot of, a lot of the girls had injuries, myself included. Um, I had three stress fractures in a row. A lot of us had eating disorders. Um, and so it was kind of just, I had to step away, um, just because it wasn't really that fun. And, um, I wasn't seeing any, any enjoyment, you know, from running and trying to compete at that high level, um, and being kind of impeded by, by so many kind of outer um, effects on us. Um, it, was, it was a good time for me to kind of step away. Once I got healthy, that's kind of when I dove into the marathon. Um, and then it was a lot of uh, fairly slow 
marathons. Um, my my PW is a 401, um, and my PR is a 259. Um, so I've I've certainly <laughs> run the span um, from good to bad. But uh, I think what really changed my focus um, was certainly taking a job in the running industry and getting back into it from that angle. Um, but also meeting my husband who, when I met him, um, he was a fairly competitive runner, um, and then ramped it up to be, to be quite competitive. Um, and so just kind of living in a space with a person like that, um, I think kind of changes, uh, your day to day, certainly, um, and the way you're eating and the way you're sleeping and the way you're training. Um, but also I think in my mind at that time, I kind of determined that I maybe had some unfinished business out there. Um, and so I was able to string together, uh, probably four years of, um, some really, really good training and it was fun and, I was in good company with lots of talented ladies that I got to train with and um, really just injury free, which as, as we get older, I think is certainly a big key. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was, it was just such a fun time. You know, it was, it was such a great time. Well, that's super interesting. It's a really a confluence of, of different factors and, I know Kevin a little bit too, and yes, he's very competitive. He's still competitive. I mean, he's he ran what low two twenties just a couple of years ago, um, so he's still still getting after it. And I imagine just living with one another and spending a lot of time together, you rub off on each other in different ways. And super interesting to hear you describe that part of the story because it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely. He and I have wildly different ways of training <laughs> um, and what works for him and what works for me. Um, but it is it is nice to kind of live and breathe with someone who's on that same wavelength mm-hmm. about like, you know, how far can we push ourselves? Back to college when you were at Portland, you described the environment there. And I don't want to spend too much time on exactly what was going on there, but safe to say it didn't sound like it was the best place to be and it sort of soured your relationship with running. Was there ever any point that you considered stepping away from the sport or did you just know that you needed to get out of that environment? I think, um, I mean, the, I want to be careful not to, um, certainly feel like I'm throwing university of Portland under the bus. It was a lovely place. Um, coaches that cared. I think that the late nineties and early two thousands were, such an interesting time for women's running. Um, and I think that there, it was, it was kind of like the olden days. Like, um, I I think a lot, so much has changed, thankfully, um, that programs are not really like that. Uh, all of the women on the team and certainly the coaches as well were very supportive. Um, I think that, and we, we all loved it, loved each other and, and had such a great time, um, with each other. But I think that putting your body through what we all thought in some way was necessary at the time, Um, you know, that distance runners need to be thin and, you know, we're not supposed to eat butter and ranch dressing and chocolate and, you know, and all of us kind of being on our own for the first time in our lives and and trying to be an 18 or 19 year old and navigate, Mm -hmm. you know, what is right and what is wrong. Um, 
it was just, it was very challenging. And it, it is so interesting um, as I, you know, navigate my, my life from there till now and, and you know, forever. Um, that kind of thing does not go away. You know, there's never a day where I just eat freely in my house and don't ever think about it. Um, I, I don't have any eating issues anymore, but there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about every single thing that I have put into my mouth. And I think that that is just, you know, it's, I've, I've come to be comfortable with that. Um, and it is what it is, but I think that I went through a time where I was very, um, upset and, and flustered, uh, and angry with the fact that I could not stay healthy. But I think that more so than that, um, you know, at the point I'm at right now and the injuries I've had over the last 10 years, which, you know, have nothing to do with that kind of environment. Um, it's disappointing when your body can't do what you ask it to do or what you want it to do. Um, and I think that for me, I'm one of those people who I truly love running. I love going outside. I love running. I feel like it is such a great stress reliever for me. I do so much great thinking um, on my runs. And I get to, I feel like I get to see the world from a, a different perspective than if I couldn't run. And I feel like my two feet have taken me through so many experiences that people who don't run or aren't active don't get to experience. Um, and so I think that when you're, when you're trying to um, work through the dynamic of, I desperately want to run, but every step is painful, it, it is so hard to marry those two things um, or to separate them and say, you know what, I just need to take a step back from this right now. This isn't working. Um, and so I think that my relationship with running as I was going through college, um, I had to, at, at the end, I finally had to do that. Um, and so I, I remember I lived off campus and I decided that I was not going to run for two months. And so I would take walks every afternoon. And the first thing that I noticed after about a week was that when I would lay down to go to sleep at night, I couldn't sleep. And since I started running when I was in third grade, I never knew <laughs> that for people maybe who don't exercise or don't like physically exhaust themselves every day, that it was possible to like go to lay down to go to sleep and not be able to sleep because I fall asleep within like three minutes of laying down every night. Um, and I think that so much of that is because I push myself mm -hmm. physically. Um, and so that was the most interesting thing. Um, but after two months, I was kind of ready to say, all right, I'm going to try to run again. And I'm not competing anymore. I'm doing it for me. Um, and that was certainly more, more healthy, but more of a way that I could find that my body could stay healthy. Um, and so I wasn't doing real hard workouts. I wasn't doing high mileage. Um, hence my kind of lackluster marathon times. Um, and then, like I said, when I met Kevin, um, I think I had a lot of years of, of very healthy, um, careful building years of running under my belt that I could kind of start to press the envelope. Um, 
and start doing those harder workouts, start doing a lot of mileage, um, and to do that without without seeing an injuries for quite a few years, which was great. I appreciate you sharing all of that. When did you start to notice a bit of a cultural shift in terms of not just women, but runners in general, especially the competitive sort, talking more openly about things like disordered eating and overtraining and you know toxic environments? Because we're in a place now where it's certainly not perfect, but as you described, it's much better than it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. I've certainly experienced much of what you described myself and have seen it shift, but I'm curious when you notice things starting to change. I think that's a great question. And I think um, when you are in that situation and you're, you know, you're away from home, you're at college. For me, I was in Oregon. Um, you are somewhat living in a bubble. You know, you have these 10, 12 girls that you see every day. You see what they're eating. You see what, you know, we know, we all know what we're running every day. Um, and I think that, I don't think that any of us thought it was normal, but I don't think that we had the information in the late 90s, being as though, you know, there was really no social media or anything like that, to know that 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 was something that was happening at other colleges. And the only way you would kind of know is when you went to the races and you would see other girls and you're like, oh yeah, that girl's really thin. Does she have a problem or is she okay? Well, she's winning. So it must be working for her, you know? And I think that's kind of how all that mindset works, which is so unfortunate. Um, but I think as, as I got older and, and took steps away from being in college and being in those situations, um, you start to meet other people as you go through life And certainly you meet people who are in college at the same time as you. As time goes on, you meet women who were also runners at D1 schools. Um, Certainly what I do has kept me close to the sport. So I'm meeting people all the time and it it just kind of comes up, you know, and it's not, it's not something funny. Um, It's not something that I don't think any of us are proud of. Um, But I think that a lot of us that it just is, it just seems like you said it, it was part of the culture, um, and it's it's just not surprising. I think that it was very common in those times, and I think that now uh, people are discovering that you know none of us were alone at that time. We were alone in the sense that we weren't as well connected to the running mm-hmm. community because you know there was no Facebook and there was no Instagram. Um, and now I think that because social media is so much a part of so many people's lives. I do think it's harder for people to to try to push into having disordered eating because it's so much more visible. You know, I mean, I think that we were all kind of in in some weird sense like keeping it a secret because there was no way to show what we were all doing, how we were all eating, how we were, you know, how we were all operating. Yeah, I think you're on the money. Um, and, and I think you touched on something else that's really important too. Before the prevalence of social media and being able to talk about this stuff online and share your story with a wider audience, it would be what you described, like in your travels or meeting other people who were in a similar place in their life to you and realizing that 
they might have been experiencing something similar. And what's interesting about that is now that we have these online platforms where, I mean, I've shared my own story online over podcasts and Instagram posts and blog posts, uh, and people have read it. And then I end up meeting some of these people in person at different events because I'm still like you involved in the industry and I get around and then you have that, that personal connection and it just, it just amplifies the conversation. And I think the conversation is so important because speaking from my own experience, you feel like you're the only one and this is something, a dirty secret that you're holding in and there's no one that you can talk about it. And now because people are much more open and we have the means to share these stories more widely, it creates this feeling of solidarity and that allows people to help one another out in different situations. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it, it is, like you said, um, I think a lot of times I'll be reading an article, not maybe not someone I've even met, but it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I struggled 20 years ago when I was in college and I haven't run competitively since. And now I just run for myself. And, you know, it's, I think it's really hard for some of those people to go back. Um, For me, I go back because I love running. You know, I, I, I'm not willing to give up running. And I I was kind of willing at some point to face the demon head on and say, I'm not going to do this anymore because I just want to run. You know, I don't care if I'm fast or slow. I just want to run. And you realize all of the other positive things that it's brought into your life from life lessons to people to experiences and in both our cases, careers. Along those lines, I'd like to make a pretty big directional switch here and talk about your career in the running industry. You and your husband, Kevin, own Blistering Pace Race Management based out of Napa, California. But I'd love to rewind a little bit and learn about when you got your start in the running industry? Yeah. Um, so mm, the way I got my start in the running industry is a very bizarre um, chance <laughs> uh, that I think about a lot. And I giggle to myself often about how ridiculous it was. But um, when I was 24, um, I had to think about that for a second. It's a long time ago. <laughs> um I was, I wanted to be a teacher and I was in a credentialing program. I had my, my, my um, BS and I was in a credentialing program to teach science and I missed my, I missed passing my subject specific science test by one point. So I could not move forward in the program oh. for a semester until I could take the test again and then get back in kind of in the queue. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I was living with my parents and like, I'll just hang out for a while. Um, and a friend of mine, her name is Laura. Um, she at the time was married to Bart Yasso, um, who is a great friend of mine. Um, former podcast guest here on the morning. Former, former guest. And I hope he listens to this, to this episode. Um, she, what they were living, they lived in Pennsylvania and, um, she somehow caught wind that I was taking a break from getting my credential and said, why don't you come out and stay with us for a while? We're just going to be kind of running races on the East coast and hanging out. I thought I had nothing to lose. And so I flew out to Philly. They picked me up. We went to their house in Bethlehem, PA, 
And I ended up staying with them for about two and a half months. Um, we ran the we ran Marine Corps together. We ran the Richmond Marathon, which at the time I, I ran a PR there. That was my PR. Um, I think I ran a three twenty six there. Um, and I got to spend a lot of time training with Bart out on the country roads, which was so great and so fun. Um, such a beautiful place to run. Um, and in this weird chain of events, um, Bart had to go in, you know, he was working at Runner's World at the time, and he had to go into New York City for the New York City Marathon Expo. They had a booth there. So he left on like a Wednesday or something, and Laura and I were going to go in on Friday night and meet up with him and then be in the city for the weekend for the race. So he leaves, we're hanging out at the house and he calls the next day and he said, Hey, I'm at the expo and I just walked past the LA marathon booth and they're, they only have one person here to work the expo. They're shorthanded. So I told him that you would take in an early bus and you'd help him out. Because he doesn't, you know, he's in there by himself and you clearly have nothing to do. So I was like, all right, yeah, sure. I'll come in early. That sounds great. So I jumped on the bus. I got to the expo. I met this guy working their booth named John. And he's like, yeah, so we're just, you know, we're handing out postcards, just telling people about the LA Marathon. I've never run the LA Marathon. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm just talking to people, just making it up as I go along. Like, yeah, the course is great. It's flat. It's fast. You know, I didn't have a clue what I was telling people. Um, so long story short, this guy, John and I get to know each other. And at some point he's like, what are you doing? Like, how did you get <laughs> the message from Bart of all people to come and help me in my booth? And like, do you have a job? Where, where are you working? Um, and so the weekend ended with him saying, well, you know, we actually have a volunteer coordinator position open with the LA Marathon. Is that something you might want to do? And so I said, well, I guess I'm open to, to talking to somebody about that. So the following week, I had a call with the race director, who at the time was Nick Curl. And um, it was basically like, you're hired. How quickly can you get out here? So I cut my time in Pennsylvania short. I mean, I don't really know that I had an end time, but um, I flew home. I packed a bag, jumped in the car and drove to LA. And then that was kind of, that was the weird way that I got my start. Um, Bart always makes fun of me because when people ask me how I got my start in the industry, um, I say, well, it started with, it started in this weird way where I lived in Bart's attic and he's like, you can't tell people that you lived in my attic. I sound like a total creep and a total weirdo. But he lives in a, literally a stone house in Bethlehem. Um, and there's three stories to the house. And when you get to the second floor, there's a little like closet door. And then there's a little teeny um, staircase behind the door. And then there's a landing with like a sloped, you know, it's where the roof is. Um, and they have a little bed and a dresser up there. And it was the perfect space for me. Um, technically not an attic, I guess. But it makes the story sound more interesting when I say I lived in Bart's attic. Um, but I 
went on to work for the LA Marathon and that job was wonderful, but it was a seasonal temporary job. So once the race was over with, uh, you know, they don't have that position for the next six, seven months. And so I was like, okay, well, this was a great foray into the running industry. What am I going to do now? And I still had that credential situation where I was like, am I going to go back and do that and be a teacher? Um, But a friend of mine who knew my boss at the time, Nick Curl, um, said that the New York Roadrunners were hiring a charity coordinator position. And so now that I got my feet wet with the volunteer coordinator, you know, what might I be interested in this other position? So I thought, well, what the heck? I guess so. Um, and so I went, flew to New York, had the interview with the New York Roadrunners, which at the time, this was the New York Roadrunners Foundation um, back in 2005. And the foundation kind of got rolled into the regular roadrunner. So it doesn't exist in that sense anymore. Um, but I was offered the job on the spot, flew home, basically packed up a couple suitcases um, and flew back about three weeks later, uh, got an apartment in Brooklyn and started working for the roadrunners. And then it's kind of just kind of snowballed from there. How long were you at the New York roadrunners? Um, not very long, actually. I only worked there for about a year. Um, and then I took a job with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and I was a, a event manager for team and training at their headquarters in White Plains, um, which is just, you know, a short train ride from the city. And, um, we worked on all of the national team and training events where the ones that like multiple chapters would go to. And we worked with the races directly to get the spots into the races and then plan all the transportation, the hotel stays, um, their pasta parties, their post-race parties, um, all of that stuff. So a lot of logistics. Yes. I got to work with more races than just the one, you know, which was the New York City Marathon or the New York Roadrunners. Um, so that was, and I also got quite a large pay raise. The New York Roadrunners Foundation in 2005 basically paid in pennies. So um, I, got a, I got a great raise. <laughs> At this point, are you having any thoughts about going back to get your teaching credential or are you so entrenched in the running industry at this point <laughs> that you're like, okay, well, I've bounced around to a couple different places at this point and I don't know exactly where I'm heading, but this is where I want to be. Yeah. So, um, my time in New York quickly went from, I'm getting paid in pennies um, my, you know, my rent in Brooklyn is expensive. I'm commuting on the train an hour each way. Um, how long can I keep this up for? I have to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, I'm in the big greatest city in the world and I don't really get to experience any of it, um, to, oh my gosh, how has it been five years? Um, so, you know, I don't think once I kind of got going, I think that the, the teaching credential was, was kind of out the window. Where did you go from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? I worked there for for quite a while, and um, I had a a great time there. Um, At some point, I had decided that I would 
like to move home. Um, and I'm from Sacramento, California. And um, so I kind of started to get into these very um, loose discussions with California International Marathon about, you know, if I move home, is there work for me there? Um, when, when might there be work for me? Um, and so I, along the way, it was kind of clear that they, that that race would kind of take me if I showed up back at home in Sacramento. Um, but that it wasn't really like a full-time employee job, so to speak, like, like what I was, you know, in, in New York. So that kind of held me away for, for about a year. Um, and I thought, you know, I'll just keep plugging along, but ultimately, you know, I just wanted to leave the city. And so I just decided I'm going to go home and I don't really care what's on the other side. Um, and so the day after I moved home, I had a, a meeting with the then race director of CIM, John Mansour. And he said, you know, we can, we can give you this, that, and this, and you can, you can work by the hour and, you know, whatever, whatever that works into, that works into. Um, and at the time, I, I didn't really have any better options. And I knew that I kind of wanted to stay in that running world. So I started working with John. And um, that's also how I met my, my husband, Kevin. Um, but we don't need to go down that, <laughs> down that rabbit hole. Um, but Kevin was working there as well. And um, we, we kind of were able to we were the two youngest people at CIM by about <laughs> 35 years. Um, and so we were able to really start to work with John um, as a really wonderful mentor into what are all the things we need to know about the running industry. Um, and so when you work with someone like that, who's been around, I mean, he's just, he's kind of a legend. Um, in the industry. I don't know if you know, he's also the executive director of the Pacific Association, but I did know that he, he just, he knows everything. He's a, such a wealth of information. Um, and so, t you know, topics across the lunch table would spawn off into, you know, how the chamber in Sacramento or the sports commission or the hotels want to give you money to do this, that, or the other, and just, um, so much out of the box, talking that really kind of make your wheels turn on how all of these things impact our industry. You know, I mean, this is not just we're opening registration for an 8,000 person race and we're going to send out a couple e-blasts and, you know, on December 6th, all these people are going to show up. There is so much more happening. Um, and he, he was just really a wealth of knowledge on how all of that works, especially for me, where my my previous roles within a race were the volunteer coordinator and a charity team coordinator where you don't get you don't get involved in any of that you know you don't see that side of of anything um and so that was um a really great way for us to learn so much information um and as time went by i think john was more than happy to let us do more and more um, and hit himself to take more and more of a backseat. And so we, we got to learn and, and kind of gain experience um, in, in a very autonomous fashion, which mm. 
for me is so great um, to, to kind of learn, <laughs> learn the hard way. Um, and some of the things that we did, we definitely learned the hard way <laughs> because he, it was a, it was a safe environment where we could mess stuff up and, and it was like, okay, well now you see what happens when you don't think about X, Y, and Z. Um, and you know, we have, we have a really funny story that I won't get into um, about Kevin and I about the worst event day that we've ever had in our lives. Um, <laughs> you have to give us the Cliff Notes version of that. You can't leave me hanging on the worst event story ever and then not not tell it. Give me give me the give me the short version or as short as you can make it without putting anyone in a compromising light. Oh no, no one will be in a compromising light. Um, so it was the Junior Olympics in Sacramento in, gosh, 2011, maybe. Um, And it's a seven-day event. And this was like day three. Every day is a 5 a.m. to midnight kind of work day. Um, This is Sacramento in August. So it's like... Hot. Yeah, 105. Um, And every day is just a nightmare. This day in particular was the day of the opening ceremony. And there was a stage that we were supposed to roll out onto the field to host the opening ceremony. The stage came on a dually. Um, This was not mentioned to us. Can't can't put a dually on the track. Absolutely not allowed. Um, No, like, you know, no car wheels on the track. Um, So we had to dolly pieces of a wooden stage that was about a foot high from across the campuses at a junior college into the track to replace this dually like fold out stage. So, I mean, this is like a clown car stage, you know, compared to what we were supposed to have. Um, Everything got so backed up because the stage couldn't be rolled out. Um, The power at the stadium, the sound blew the power because everything got so backed up. Um, We were still on the field in opening ceremonies when the sprinklers went on in the, on the infield. Um, and then, and then because the sprinklers went on, uh, at the very end of the opening ceremonies, there was like a confetti boom, um, with like confetti tissue paper, but the sprinklers were on. So it like melted all over the track, all this wet tissue paper. And then after all this, we find out, um, so the, the opening ceremony, um, like entertainment act was a rapper named Lil Jordan. And Lil Jordan was like, you know, eight or something. And he came with a giant entourage and him and his entourage claimed, and it could have been true, but I, we have no idea that, um, their like dressing room, quote unquote, which was the tennis courts. Cause you know, this was, this is an outdoor venue, um, that it was burglarized while Lil Jordan was on stage and they stole $10,000 worth of makeup and like costumes and supplies. So then they, they like slapped that suit onto the top of all of this. And <laughs> we, it was midnight by the time we finally got out of there and we were just like beat into submission so hard. But then the next morning, we're actually going to start the track meet. Like this had already been three days. This was day three, the worst day by far. And then the next morning, we're supposed to be back at five in the morning to like start the track meet. 
which is several days long. And so I remember going home that night and just being like, this can't be my life. Uh, <laughs> and when the, when the alarm went off the next morning, I just shut it off. And I laid there for like a good 25 minutes. And I was like, I don't even care if I'm late. Like, what are they going to do? What, what's going to happen there without me for the next hour? Like, I, last night went so bad. There's, it can't be any worse, you know? Like, me rolling in an hour late isn't going to matter. Um, but because we are who we are, you can't, like, go back to sleep. You know, it's just weighing on your conscience. Like, I've got to get out of bed. I have to go face, <laughs> face the demons. Um, and the rest of the week was fine. Um, but, you know, those, those kids' track meets are, they're incredibly draining. And so many children, so many parents, um, so much garbage. Um, some parents got in a fight in the, in the, in the stands during one of the races. Um, I mean, the, the kids' track is at another, another level. Well, when it's a week-long event like that and all of the logistics and moving parts involved, you've really got to love what you're doing to, <laughs> to, to, to kind of go through with all of that and then to come out of that experience and be like, okay, yeah, I still do want to direct another race or put on another <laughs> event. By that point, so around like 2010, 2011 or so, you've been working for... CIM and putting on that event and related ones. Are you pretty certain at that time that event management is the path that you want to be on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there was no doubt about it at that point in time. And um, from everything that John taught us, and even now, I mean, fast forward another almost 10 years, um, I still feel to this very second uh, so fortunate to have learned everything that I learned from John because as you go out there and you you dabble further and further, you go from a big toe to a foot to a lower leg, you know, into the water, into this industry. Um, there are so many people putting on races, and I mean this with no disrespect, but so many of them should not be doing what they're doing. Um, they don't have enough knowledge. They don't have the right skill set. Um, but, you know, th this industry kind of is very open-armed and we accept everybody in there. And some people occasionally find out the hard way, you know, by doing a race that is put on by someone who maybe shouldn't be putting it on, that there are some subpar experiences to be had out there. Um, but I, I feel so fortunate that I have been able to learn and glean as much as I could from John. I mean, he's just, he's a wealth of information. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to my friends at UCAN for supporting this episode of the podcast. UCAN is unlike sugary sports nutrition because it can be used outside of training too. UCAN is based on the premise of steady, long-lasting energy with no spikes and no crash, which is exactly what you want to fuel your day. The new UCAN Energy Plus Protein features 20 grams of plant-based or whey protein plus UCAN's patented super starch energy source. Try incorporating UCAN into your recovery or meal replacement smoothies for a sustained energy boost. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. 
In this unique period where none of us are racing, it's a great time to take advantage of the opportunity to try something that is completely different than other sports nutrition. Go to youcan.co slash shakeout. That's youcan.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25 at ShakeOut25 to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning ShakeOut podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Despite all of the challenges and headaches and moving parts of putting on events, why do you do it? Hmm. Um, I think... I I wouldn't say that the reason changes as every day goes by, but as I have kind of transitioned from being a competitive runner into more of like a, I'm going to run when I can and how I can and as fast as I can, which isn't, (laughs) isn't fast anymore. Um, I, I feel that along the way I have been fortunate to have those memorable experiences from running and I'm at the point now, and, and I know Kevin, my husband is too, where we feel like for us at this point, at this stage of our running career, um, that we are best suited to give back to the running community and to, to almost kind of live vicariously through the people that we get to serve from the races that we work on. And as exciting as it was for me, to come around the final corner at the Houston Marathon and and get get my 259. I'll remember that that you know that last minute forever. We get to create that for people. And it's it's really exciting and it's really special and we take it very seriously and we we really <laughs> I think that we really love the opportunity that we have to have to have had the running industry give so much to us personally as runners, but now to, to have it give back to us in, in giving us this very fulfilling career, but to be able to kind of lay the groundwork for so many other people's experiences in this, in this world and in this sport. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, we, we get up at 1230 AM sometimes. And, um, there's that age old question like, Oh, that's so cool. Do you get to run the race too? (laughs) Like, well, no, not exactly. exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I'm the co-start line director for the Chicago marathon and we start our day at 1am and it's bitterly cold and it's dark and, you know, there's like raccoons running around out there. And I, I mean, some of the things that we have to do are so ridiculous um, for, for Kaiser Half, which is, you know, a race near and dear to, to my heart that we manage fully for the Palm Kid Runners in San Francisco. Um, w- my day starts on race day at about three and it finishes in Napa at about 5.30 p.m., uh, closing the door to the storage unit and heading home. Long, long missed the big game. You know, the Super Bowl is a figment of our imagination. Um, but, you know, a 20-hour a workday <laughs> or whatever that, you know, ends up being, 
Um, and it's just filled with manual labor and tons of exhaustion. I heard someone say yesterday on a, a different podcast I was listening to that the role of a race director is comparable to that of a CEO. But as a race director, you make the amount of decisions in one day that a CEO makes in an entire year. And when you think about that, it seems extreme, but it's totally true. I mean, there are 8,000 runners' lives in my hands. And I think that that comes into play um, in you know a Boston 2013 situation or even a COVID-19 situation, which I know we're going to dive into Napa a little bit in that, in that regard. But um, the days where we put on races as a race director, you know, for us, full, full race management where we're handling everything, they are the most stressful days of the year. Not only are they the most stressful, but they're the most physically taxing. I mean, we're loading up trusts and pallets of water and driving forklifts and pulling pallet jacks. And I mean, it is not... It's not for the faint at heart, but I think that we have, um, Kevin and I have good, a good sense of humor. Um, I would say myself more than him. <laughs> uh, but I think that we know what it takes to get the job done. We're willing to do it. Uh, we don't really complain about it. I mean, we know what the task is. Um, we usually are pretty positive about what needs to be done, how to get it done. and more important than all of that, we have an amazing team to lean on to help us get through that. I mean, we we can't do it without anybody else. You know, I mean, that's my job is so minuscule compared to what everybody that we hire, all the volunteers, all the key staff have to do to to carry those races out. Well, as someone who has participated in a few of your events, I, for one, appreciate all you do. Run a lot of races in my entire life, and I know the difference at this point between a well organized event and a well run event, and one that is not so well run and not so well organized. Uh, so I can appreciate the attention to detail, the long hours, the labor that goes into it. So thank you for everything that you, Kevin, and your teams do for the events that you put on. Last bit before we dive into some more present issues affecting races and the sport. When did you and Kevin decide to go off on your own and start blistering pace race management? Yeah. So um, we worked at California International Marathon or Sacramento Running Association for um, four years, I think, four and a half years. And um, John, our, you know, our mentor that I spoke about, he retired um, in 2013. And I became the race director of CIM. And um, that was not something that I saw happening for at least another 10 years. Uh, I didn't think that John was going to retire. I thought that he would, I mean, eventually someday. Um, But I kind of thought that I had another 10 years to learn from him. And it really caught us off guard, caught us by surprise. Um, And so through a lot of hoops, quite frankly, um, I became the race director and, um, things went well, uh, for, for kind of being thrown right into it, um, the way it happened. 
Um, but there was a ton of transition behind the scenes because John was a, he was the race director for all 30 years that the race had existed. He started the race back in 1983 and he worked in a home that he owned and we worked in that home as well, which is kind of, kind of weird. Uh, it wasn't the home that he lived in, which often confused people because they would be like, that, that poor woman who works in her living room. It's like, that's not where she also watches TV. Don't be confused. <laughs> um, but as, as we got more comfortable with John before he had retired, we started working from our home quite a bit more than going into the home office. Um, and so once he retired, the board of directors and the other staff who were kind of involved, um, determined, and at that time there were no full-time employees. None of us were employees. None of us were full-time. Um, the board determined that they wanted to change things. They wanted to make things more like, uh, official, I guess, if, if you will. Um, and so they wanted us all to become employees, full-time employees with vacation and, you know, vacation days and sick days. And, um, we, they wanted to rent an office, um, down, it was like kind of in midtown Sacramento. Um, and they wanted to have it be more of like a normal quote unquote workplace where we would go there from nine to five. And, um, we, Kevin and I resisted that a bit, um, because at the time we were training quite a bit. I mean, at, at that time I was running 90 miles a week. Um, we were often running twice a day. We were not waking up to an alarm, um, but we were getting our work done. I mean, we were very dedicated people working on that event. Um, and so I think, I think we, as we kind of went through the process, we went through CIM as, as me as a race director and Kevin was the director of operations. Um, we determined that we kind of didn't want some of that stuff forced upon us. Um, and so it, it caused us to kind of take a step back and think, what do we really want to do here? And so um, Kevin had randomly um, seen a job posting for kind of a director of operations type role with Destination Races that was headquartered in Sonoma. Um, and we knew Julia Stamps, Mallon, from um, having run as an elite runner in some of the races that Sacramento Running Association had put on. And so we knew that she worked there. And so Kevin emailed her and she said, oh my gosh, you'd be such a great fit. You know, let's get you in here for, for a talk with the owner. And so we drove over to Sonoma one afternoon. He met with Matt Dockstadter, who's the owner of Destination Races at the time. And he got a job offer like a day later. So we're like, all right, you know, like if we're, if we're not going to work on California International Marathon anymore, let's kind of, let's go big and let's move, you know, let's get out of Sacramento. I mean, I'm, I'm from Sacramento, I've lived here my whole life, except for when I went to New York. Um, you know, let's try something different. So as strange as that transition was, um, it was... I think is so imperative to our success today because we were able to get out of, I mean, Matt, Matt and John as, you know, boss to boss, if you're comparing the two, they're nothing alike. I mean, they're, 
their level of um, interests are not similar. Their level of understanding in the running industry is, is very different. Um, the types of events that they put on are wildly different. But Matt taught Kevin, certainly, and then myself, because I started working as kind of a contractor at their finish lines to help with the venue. Um, he has a level of detail in the look, in the kind of the perfection, um, in what the branding of something like a wine country half marathon is supposed to be. And those are not things that we had any experience dealing with with CIM. Um, and, and certainly CIM in, in the last six years has come a long way. And we knew that it needed to progress but I don't think at the time we would have had the tools to bring it along ourselves because we only knew what John had taught us. And so I think that Scott Abbott, who's the executive director there, has done a tremendous job um, kind of identifying, you know, how do we make this a Sacramento event, but also draw in these other elements of elite athletes and the fastest course in the West and, you know, PR, um, OTQ factory and all of those things that it has become. Um, we were there at the tip of the iceberg and it really took somebody else to kind of push it off into what it has become now, um, which has been really great and inspiring to watch. Now you, Kevin, and the rest of the Blistering Pace team put on events all around the Bay Area in Napa, Sonoma counties, including the Kaiser Permanente um, San Francisco Half Marathon that is popular here in the area. You put on the Napa Marathon and now Half, which I took part in a couple of years ago. Right now, we're having this conversation last day of April 2020. You guys put on probably one of the last events that I can think of in the area with the Napa Marathon on March 1st before uh, lockdown came into play and we weren't allowed to have big gatherings. What have things been like for you over the past two months? Yeah, so we joke, although it's not funny, um, that with Kaiser Half in San Francisco, we had a season opener and a month later with Napa Valley Marathon in half, we had a season closer, um, which is, you know, so foreign to, to what our years for the last four years since we started Blistering Pace have become. Um, typically, our winter is very busy and our fall is off the rails busy. Um, we we work on Chicago, we work on New York, we work on Monterey Bay half. Um, and so all of those things in the fall, um, just kind of all butt up against each other and make it for a really crazy month and a half. Um, when we put on the Kaiser half, there was really no, no talk of coronavirus. Um, it was, you know, a figment of, our imagination. I remember he, uh, maybe it was like a Facebook post or something, um, or a message, um, that someone sent in saying, are you guys going to cancel the race because of coronavirus? And I, you know, we, when we are working on Kaiser half, um, it is every day, 16 hours a day at our desks, um, you know, the, the holiday season makes it a bit tough because we just kind of get stalled out with being able to 
finish things because people take these extended leaves and no one's in the office to, you know, confirm an order or whatever. So the month of January becomes very, very tough. Um, and certainly leading up to any race that you're putting on is, is tough and a lot of time spent working on the preparations. So um, we don't tend to watch a lot of TV during times like that. And I kind of was like, I don't even know what this person is talking about. I mean, like, you know, talk about living under a rock. Like I, I'm just like in my computer land, you know, trying to get everything dialed in for the race. Don't watch TV. Yeah, just focused um, so, on one thing. Totally. And so I don't, I mean, we certainly were like, but what are they even talking about? Um, and then even after Kaiser half for the next several weeks, there was really nothing. I mean, it was totally under the radar. And, um, I remember we went to, so now, you know, we've turned all our focus to Napa Valley marathon and we went to an aid station captain meeting. Um, and while we were at the meeting, I got a alert that someone had sent a Facebook message and it said, are you going to cancel the race because there's a confirmed um, case of coronavirus in Napa County? And I was like, what is this person talking about? So as I kind of dove in to the details after the meeting, it was one of the cruise ships that had docked and they sent the people from the ship to Travis Air Force Base, which is in Fairfield. And they have to kind of dole out those ship people, the people on the ship, um, to surrounding hospitals. And every hospital has like, this is what I've, this is what I was told anyway. Um, Every hospital has a few isolation rooms. And so they had to send a few people to each hospital around. And so Napa kind of got their person that they were going to isolate. And so that, hence, that was our positive case. Um, And so uh, there's a couple of board members that work on the Napa Valley Marathon board who are doctors. And so they felt very confident, like, this is just a case from the ship. This is total business as usual. We're going to isolate these people and, you know, we're going to test them. We're going to find out who else they've been talking to or, you know, sharing space with, blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, the tracing kind of elements. Um, And so from that moment, that was about two, probably two weeks out. um, Things just came fast and furious from that moment forward. Um, And then there was a case that was... um, made positive from like Santa Clara County or something, you know, one of the seven Bay area counties. And then the, maybe the week of the race, um, London breed came on the news and declared San Francisco County, like an emergency, you know, disaster zone or something. And it was like, Oh my God, like this cannot really be happening right now. Um, and so at that time, we were having like three check in calls a day um, with Kaiser Permanente, which became a very um, interesting and, and frankly quite tenuous situation where um, Kaiser Permanente is our title sponsor, but they're also, you know, kind of leading uh, a leading charge on as a health expert. Um, and then to complicate things even more, which was just our specific experience is that three of our board members are doctors and they're all doctors with Kaiser Permanente. So 
there was quite a bit of blurred lines, um, which is a little bit scary when you're the race director and you're trying to advocate for, um, you know, like, let's just keep our race hat on and we don't want a sponsor to weigh in on what we are or aren't doing, but we have to kind of allow them to because they're health experts. Yeah. Um, so that is a tricky situation to be in. Yeah. It got very tricky. Um, but even at that point, and obviously we went forward with the race at that point, all of the communications that were going forward, um, through, you know, Kaiser, through all of the local kind of hospitals and all of those things was, um, it is a type of flu. It is, you know, wash your hands, don't touch people. Um, this is just, you know, kind of a, a common flu. So there was certainly not the level of concern that there is today about what it has become or what it was always, what it always was, but what no one was really saying at the time. Um, and so we kind of talked through, um, and really this came to a head on Friday and we have a one day expo for Napa. So we were kind of like, if we're going to open tomorrow morning, for the expo, we're going to have the event, you know, we're not going to open the expo and then somehow pull it back. Um, so it was like, okay, well, Kaiser at the time still, still had their hands on some hand sanitizer. Um, and so they gave us 500 bottles and we put it everywhere. Uh, we had masks and gloves available for all of the, um, volunteers in the finish shoot because we felt like that was, you know, at the time that was the most high touch zone. Um, and we didn't really experience anyone who seemed to be very concerned or scared um, or worried about contracting it. And if you remember, um, the Tokyo Marathon canceled uh, two weeks before our event. And uh, the morning that it happened, you know, Tokyo's ahead of us, they basically canceled in the middle of our Sunday night. And, um, when we woke up in the morning, we were, you know, in full, in full race preparation mode. So we're working every day, weekend or not Sunday morning, like 9am, we're sitting down on our computers, we're drinking coffee and breakfast. And Kevin says, did you send out some kind of promo email today? And I said, no, definitely not. And he said, we've had 33 registrations this morning. And I thought, that's weird. I mean, Sundays are typically good days in, in race registration speak. Um, but 33 registrations before 9 a.m. is definitely bizarre. Um, and so I, I think I went on a run and I came back and I was like, I know what's going on. Tokyo canceled and people are signing up. And that's what ended up happening. We ended up getting 180 marathoners in three days wow. who, who were turning around from Tokyo and desperately wanting to run a race. And so we, as I, and I feel terrible even admitting this, but we had people coming to Napa from all over the world. And that is kind of, that was an interesting thing to see in the sense that like, when you talk about people with disposable income, you know, to pivot from being in New Zealand and, you know, supposed to be taking a trip to Tokyo and deciding on a dime, I'm going to go to Napa because that race is open and I can still get in. 
um, it is it is really crazy to see kind of the range of what people are able to do in situations like that. Um, but you know, as much as I would like to say, oh, we had the hand sanitizer, we had masks, we had gloves. We brought people from all over the world to Napa, um, and so at this point as we've thought through it and seen everything that has happened since then. And we were not the last race to go. I mean, the um, LA marathon went um, a week later. I think that um, we did everything as safely as we could. Um, We, we tried to um, make the event as healthy as possible. Um, and I think that we were successful in that way. Um, and at that, at that time, there was really not a reason to cancel. There was not the level of concern. There was certainly no, right. right, There was no one telling us we needed to cancel. Um, and I think frankly, it would have looked very bizarre if we would have just said, you know what, we're, we're out, we got to cancel this race. Um, LA definitely a more difficult decision um, than we had because even in that one week post Napa Valley Marathon, um, things got really hairy really quickly. Um, but it, it's such a hard position to be in. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, I mean, we had we had five thousand people's lives in our hands uh, on that day, and it it is you know it's our responsibility to to do the right thing to protect those people as, as best as possible. Well, I think given the timing of it, the size of the field, the information that was known at the time, it was the right call. It would look a lot different now, right? Um, mm-hmm. Should your race be this weekend? I mean, it probably would have been canceled several weeks ago at right. this point, but it was just this weird time. That was the same weekend as the Olympic trials marathon. And I keep thinking about that. I'm like, if the Olympic trials were a week or two later, they might not have happened. And that's, oh, for sure. and that's pretty wild to think about. And obviously at this point, the Olympics have been postponed a year and they certainly could have reheld the trials next year, possibly, or at some other time. But it is kind of, it's crazy just how quickly things escalated. And we went from it being okay to have a race to all of a sudden, everything's off. Uh, don't even think about it. Yeah. And we, I, I totally forgot because we were, you know, up to our ears here in, in trying to put on this race, but, um, we were queuing off the trials a lot because they were the day before us. And we were like, you know, if the trials are going to happen, we're going to happen. You know, I mean, we, if they're going to happen, we're not going to cancel. Um, and so we, we went forward, but not without, um, during the trials being televised, um, President Trump coming on TV and saying that we've had our first death in the United States, um, which was like, oh my God, get the tur- get the TVs off. <laughs> we cannot be playing this right now in the hotel lobby. Um, and of course, the TVs had a huge crowd because that message came on when the race was at like mile 20, you know? So everyone's just like on the edge of their seat, watching TV, trying to find out who's going to be on the next Olympic team. And then there's an interruption to talk about, you know, the first death in this global pandemic in this country. It was like, oh my gosh, the timing couldn't be worse. As a race director, what do things look like for you right now? With no events going on and an uncertain future ahead of us. 
Yeah. So there's been so much talk, as you mentioned, you know, the Running USA um, webinar about what events could look like in the in the future. Um, you know, do we have to let people go on a um, a rolling clock so that they're more spread out, or do we have to use bring your own bottles so that people aren't touching cups at aid stations? And you know, I, I mean, there's we could we could delve into all of those details forever, and everyone's going to have a different idea on what's safe, what works, what doesn't. Um, but I think that the biggest thing right now is that we don't know when there's going to be another race and we don't know what the situation is going to look like when there is another race. So as much as I am a fan of being prepared for what the future looks like, it almost sometimes seems counterintuitive to go down that rabbit hole of, you know, how do we stay six feet apart and how do we do this and that? Because for, frankly, from what it sounds like, I mean, we're in California, what Gavin Newsom's, you know, four phases are, we're not having a mass participation event until we're in phase four and phase four says treatment and or vaccine. So if everyone has a vaccine and that's what we are being mandated to, to move forward, do we need to social distance the corrals? You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to to dumb down, you know, all of the forward thought that's going into how we get events back online. But I also think that there's this element to running that is very specific and it's very special and it's not social distanced. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to run anymore if I have to social distance or I'm not going to put on races because I can't rise to the challenge of creating a socially distanced corral. I will do that. Um, but when I think about some of my, um, my memories in running, um, I think of like, you know, just running right on someone's shoulder, trying to break them, you know, and, and to, to beat them or to, to grind and grind and grind on a group to, to my best time, you know? And I think that if we had to manipulate our sport so that that was no longer a possibility, it would, it would change a lot. It would change a lot more than, you know, how do we get these people into the corral six feet apart? It would change so much more than that. Um, you know, and there's, there, there's talk about the, the thermal gauges, you know, can we pick out who has a temperature and tell them they have to go home? Um, can we, uh, take everyone's temperature? You know, can we swab everyone? Um, there, there are so many details that, I, you know, it's very stressful to think about. Um, I think for the rest of this year, um, we're looking at the fall um, in a step-by-step, day-by-day scenario. And even that seems very uncertain. Um, the thing that I think people need to consider about kind of what we as race directors or, or you know, race management folks are dealing with is not so much okay, you know, the, the next world marathon major, you know, let's take October, Chicago. Um, are we going to, is it going to be okay to have an event in October? We don't know, you know, we have no idea, but when you start to back that decision up, so the race is on like October, let's call it October 10th. Um, you know, in, in the very least, we would need to alert people before they got on a flight to go to Chicago. 
Then you back that up more. When are they buying that flight? Then you back that up more. When does Chicago have to purchase 50,000 medals and shirts? And how much is how much they're going to sink into that cost only to potentially not have the race and, and throw all that money in the trash can? Um, you know, when are some of Chicago's deposits due for major vendors? Um, and and then it's, you know, when you put into what some of these states are coming up with the different phases, I don't know anything about what, what Chicago or what the state of Illinois is rolling out. Um, but there are so many details to consider that you almost get to a point where for an October 10th race, your go, no go date is July 10th, Mm -hmm. you know, because you need that much time to figure out what all the next steps are. So it's really, it really doesn't even become a situation in which you're saying, you're evaluating October 10th as a viable date for can we bring people together in a mass crowd? It's it's much, much more backed up than that. And I think that that's what all of us in the industry are struggling with. And I think that the runners, and you know, I'm a runner myself too. And I, I would love to think about when my next race is. And actually, my I have a race planned for my 40th birthday, which is in September. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it. And there's nothing that breaks my heart more than that. Um, but I think what I am, if, if you could call <laughs> this time inspiring, um, I think what I am inspired by is what I have seen of the running community and certainly of the running industry community um, that we're all kind of here together supporting each other when and where and how we can. And I think that when we are able to get back online, it's going to be very special. Um, You know, I was at the 2013 Boston Marathon and I remember how heartbreaking and how troubling and how sad that experience was for me. It's an experience I'll never forget. Um, But I was also at the 2014 Boston Marathon and I remember how important that experience was and how I, myself, and I think so many others went back the next year feeling like you can't hold us down. We're going to do amazing things together. And I think that this is another one of those situations. Um, the running industry really, <laughs> it has really taken it on the chin. Um, I mean, from 2012, New York, Sandy, 2013, Boston, um, all the fires in Northern California, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, um, and now this. But I think that it is the one thing that really keeps us on our toes and and keeps this industry moving forward in a creative capacity, um, in in a, you know, updated technology driven, um, space. There are so, I mean, I'm a running purist and there are so many things that we're doing today that none of us would have ever imagined, you know, even five years ago. Um, and so I think the more we keep being pressed, the more we're going to rise to the occasion and we're going to think of, of a new way to do something or a way, a workaround. Um, and so, it's not if we'll be back online, it's when. And I think that, you know, whether we're a runner or whether we're on the race director side, um, 
we're all itching to get there as, as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, we're just kind of in a, we're in a holding pattern, um, for us personally, because we're, we're lucky to have gotten our winter events in, um, we do work on Big Sur and obviously that's been postponed and the fall is that, like I said, a busy time for us is a big question mark right now. Um, as a business owner, it's, it's very scary. Um, and we have, we have a 2020 normal, um, you know, deliverables, Excel spreadsheet. Um, and we have a 2020, you know, pandemic spreadsheet, which basically says, uh, we are not going to see another dime, um, for the foreseeable future. And that's definitely the scary part. And I think for Kevin and myself, I never actually said how I ended up starting Blistering Pace, which is not important at this point in time. But we kind of, in 2016, we went all in and this is our home and this is our career. And this is this is kind of where we want to live out our future. And so we're going to, we're going to ride the storm and we're going to, we're going to weather it and we're going to come out on the other side. Um, not everyone in this business, I don't think is as fortunate as, as we are, or, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but I think that our mission is clear. Um, and I think there's a lot of other people who are like, Hey, you know, if I'm going to get furloughed until the end of 2020, I'm just going to leave this industry and I'm going to mm-hmm. go get a different job. You know, they're not going to be here when it's over. Along those lines, do you think this forced pause in the cancellation of mass gatherings for the foreseeable future is going to be the end of some races and some events? I do. Um, I think there's going to be a round of consolidation through this. Um, and I think that that could be good or bad. Um, for better or worse, I am a fan of the little guy. Um, and that's kind of what Blistering Pace has, that's what we've built our business around. Um, we don't work really for any big conglomerates. Um, we work uh, on a lot of races that are board owned and operated 501c3s. And I'm going to root for that that guy all day, every day, because I feel that those are the races that can deliver um, the most poignant experiences um, where they're really showcasing where they are or what they give back to. You know, the Kaiser Half gives $100,000 to local charity every year. The Napa Valley Marathon is is one of the most beautiful courses you could ever imagine. I'm so fortunate to live here. Um, but they, you know, they give about $30,000 back to the local community high schools. Um, those are the kinds of things that we love to be involved with. But those are also certainly the most vulnerable. Um, and I think that those two examples there, um, they don't have any staff. They don't have any employees. They hire, they outsource us to put on their event for them. And I think that those are in a really good position right now because certainly they've minimized their expenditures. They're not paying benefits. They're not paying someone to work year round. Um, but not, you know, every single race that you're going to come across has a different um, setup. They're, they're, they function differently. Um, you know, Big Sur Marathon Foundation has seven employees. Um, and so, you know, it's everybody has to kind of figure out their own way and what that looks like. And, and some, some races, I just don't think they're going to be able to hang on, which is really sad. But 
you know, I mean, there this happens in this industry. There's always ebbs and flows. You know, we all know that back in 2013, um, this race industry saw such huge highs, um, and and then participation kind of went backward for a little while, and races didn't do as well. So um, I think that there's a lot of good that can come out of something like this, even though at this time right now it's bad. Do you think, and this will purely be your opinion at this point, but long-term, big events, the 40,000, 50,000 people events will suffer even when there is a vaccine and we might see a return to more people doing local events in their backyard? That's a great question. And I have actually not thought about that. Um, I'm so sick of hearing that term, the new normal, um, which plays right into what you just asked, um, that maybe that will become the new normal. Um, I, I know that something that we've kind of talked about within the industry over the last two weeks specifically is um, fear. And I think that that's something that is really important to get in front of as we all move forward. And I, I take a lot of time, my husband and I take a walk every night with our newfound time. Um, and that's one of the things that we've talked about is that we've noticed that races and communities um, are really kind of reaching out there right now to, to make contact. Um, and it, it could be a race director actually getting in front of the Instagram story or whatever and saying, hey, I want you to know that I'm thinking about you and I'm sad that we can't have this race. Um, and Or it might be um, that runners, you know, I'm the, I'm the president of the West Valley Track Club and we have seen, I have personally seen a really inspiring amount of people from the club reaching out to each other. Um, and, and I think that this has pushed us into this new phase, a, a new normal, uh, quote unquote. Um, and I don't know if it will continue once things are kind of back. Um, but I hope that it does because I think that it, it has, like you used the word pause earlier, um, it has really paused us all and made us think, you know, am I, for me personally, it's, am I living my life the right way? You know, am I getting everything that I can get out of this life? Am I doing good things? Am I, do I have a purpose? Um, and I think that that fear is so much going to play into how the future specifically into those large events comes back. Um, and I think that we, some of that reaching out that race directors or races or communities are doing to each other um, is, is trying to get in front of that fear and to just say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm thinking about you. Um, I, I, I want to do something for you. Let me know what that is. Um, I think for like a New York City Marathon, for example, um, I, I'm in a position where I cannot be afraid. Um, you know, in what, what I do for a living, my, my life, my career, I have to get out there and be among the people. And if I'm not comfortable doing that, I can't expect my runners to be comfortable doing that. Um, but I think, I think it's going to be a job that every single one of us has to take on headfirst. 
And we have to figure out, does, you know, does this race saying they're going to have gloves, hand sanitizer, masks, temperature gauges, you know, all these things, does that make me feel safe? And if not, you, anyone who's listening, (laughs) you have got to speak up and tell us what is going to make you feel safe. Because as a person who is in charge of branding at the New York City Marathon finish line, it's a really special thing. And it is the world's largest marathon. It's 51,000 people. And it is, it is a sight. It is a feeling. I get goosebumps talking about it. And if that has to go away because we're, we're afraid of people, that's going to be a really sad day. You know, it just is. Yeah, I I don't disagree. It, it's kind of this this weird place where you don't want to be afraid to put yourself in those types of environments because they are really special. On the flip side, it would also be awesome to see more people get behind local races and build community in that way. And I don't know, in an ideal world, maybe we can have both. Maybe these more people start running and these smaller community races can really start to thrive, but more people will want to experience Boston or New York or Chicago and race directors can find a way to create the conditions to make it an environment that people feel safe and comfortable in. For sure. And I mean, in that way with the smaller races, you know, Kaiser, I would say is a, is a local community race. It's not that small, but, um, I hold that, you know, near and dear to my heart. What I have noticed working from my kitchen table during these last 45 days is that there are two people who run by my window and I just live in a little tiny, you know, a little area. It's called the alphabet streets. Um, Run by my window. I've lived here for five years. This has been my desk chair for four years and I've never seen them. And I know based on, I mean, I can gather based on what they're wearing and the shoes that they're wearing, that they are new runners. And those, I I don't think this is something that is uncommon to what anyone else has seen. I think this is happening right now because people can't go to gyms. You know, they can't go to the park and run. They have to run from their house. Um, And so people are like, I've got to get out there and do something. Um, But I think that those are the people that we are going to work into transitioning first into those local events. I mean, those aren't the people that go straight from couch to the New York City Marathon. And so I think there's a lot of details to get through on what this all looks like in the future um, and, you know, coming up. But for sure, the smaller events are the ones that are going to be back online first. And I think to some extent, the larger events are going to be taking notes from them on what's allowed, how they made it work, you know, and what some of this stuff starts to look like as we move forward. Last bit before we wrap up here, Runner's World had an article last week which referenced this Running USA gathering that you were a part of. Different race directors from around the country got together to talk about many of these same issues. And one thing that jumped out at me from that article was that we may we being races may return to days of old, like what was old will be new again in terms of maybe less frills and not as big of an expo and possibly no big post-race party. You'll get your bib or medal mailed to you. I'd love to just get some of your thoughts on that. And if you think that could be something that is temporary or this whole situation may fundamentally change the way that 
events are run moving forward? I think um, that's such a great question. Um, it's it's a great point. Um, certainly, wholeheartedly, I think that over the last, I would say, at least five years, the running industry has has really overextended themselves on what we are offering the runners. And I think that that has been a way for races to kind of um, put themselves on the map. So, you know, well, we're going to offer bib mailing and we're going to offer this. And if you register by this date, you can get this. And we're going to give you a bag to check at this place. And, you know, I mean, just on and on and on. And I think that this is definitely a, a get out of jail free card to take a few steps back and maybe to not be offering some of these things that certainly have cost um, races more money having to staff these things. But we all know that if staffing costs are going up, that race registration fees are going up to cover that. So it's costing runners money as well. Um, But I think that certainly some of those additions that have come about over the last couple of years are also high touch zones. Um, so for let's take gear check, for example, maybe, you know, I, I think at Boston, um, you can no longer check a bag at the start line. And so maybe this is what all races go to moving forward. If you want to check a bag because you're going to be cold at the finish line and you're not going to be able to get, you know, into your shelter quickly, you need to check it in the morning before you go to the start, or maybe maybe you can check it on Saturday. Um, and that at the start line, you just have throwaway clothes. Um, it is amazing to me how little new runners know about kind of some of the ins and outs of how these things work. Um, where Boston, you know, they're telling people you can't check a bag at the start line, and people come wearing you know, 10 layers of sweats and throwaway clothes, but they've been through the situation before. They've kind of, they've, they know about it. Um, at the Napa Valley half marathon, we do allow gear check at the half marathon starts a point to point. Um, and it is shocking to me how many people show up with a bag that has a bottle of water and like, you know, an aspirin in it. And they're wearing shorts and a tank top. And they're like, how could you not provide any heat or a tent for me to sit in out here? And it's like, where's your throwaway clothes? Or how about just some clothes that you can check? We're not even asking you to throw the clothes away. Um, And so I think that there is, at this point in time, also a, um, a call for race directors or race management to go back and do some better educating to our runners. And whether that is, we used to offer you this, this, and this, and we're going to pull that back. And here's what it needs to look like now. This is where where you participate. Um, Another big way that we have talked about um, this kind of, we need the people, we need the participants to help us meet us halfway is with... um, medical information. And so, you know, we have, we've all seen the bibs that we wear and on the back it says, you know, list your emergency contact and what medicine are you allergic to or whatever. I have run hundreds of races and I have never filled that out. And so we are in this position now where we're kind of needing to rely, to get back online, we're needing to rely on runners to tell us that they're healthy. And so how do we do that? 
Um, we need runners to meet us halfway and we need them to say, hey, listen, I haven't had a fever or a cough and I don't know anybody who has. And if we can start diving into that stuff, I mean, in California, phase four is going to kind of negate that and they're going to tell us you can't have a mass participation event until there's a vaccine. Um, But I think that we have kind of been letting a lot of stuff slide and we're at this juncture where we need to say, we need the runner to meet us halfway. And the, the quicker we do that, and the quicker we all do that across the board in the running industry, the quicker we're going to get back online with our races. Um, but yes, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are going to fall by the wayside in terms of what races have been able to offer and what it looks like moving forward for sure. All right. I've got one more question before we actually wrap this up. Race directors such as yourself end up getting a lot of heat in a situation like this when events get canceled and things move slowly, oftentimes because of the uncertainty of the situation. What would you tell runners out there who have had their events canceled or postponed and are frustrated by it? Yeah, so I, again, as a runner, I totally feel that this is... um, I feel, I feel you. (laughs) And I, I think that if it were me and I was like, okay, you know, I've, I've got this race that I was supposed to run in April and now it's been postponed till November, but I don't really know if it's going to happen. I would feel a lot of anxiety about that. And I would, I feel like so many of us out there who are just aimlessly walking out the door every day and running, we don't know what we're training for. We don't really know if what's on the calendar is going to happen. And that's that can be stressful. Um, I mean, for me, so stressful that I actually can't run right now. I have to bike because I, I don't feel good. And I know that it's because I have no idea what's going to happen. And it's out of my control. And that, you know, as a race director, that's, <laughs> that's not something that is, you know, normal for us. So we plan every single last detail and we have a plan for the plan. But um, I think that it's important for everyone to understand that every single day, that every single one of us, whether you're a race director or you're a runner or you're neither, every day that we are getting out of bed right now, everything that's happening is unprecedented. And so while we are collectively in the running industry, we're uh, generally speaking a group that cares a lot about what we do. We care a lot about the runner. We care a lot about our community. We don't have all the answers. And I think that as, as difficult as that is to say, it's even more difficult for us to swallow because, you know, some of us have been doing what we've been doing. I've been doing this for 15 years and I don't know what tomorrow has in store. Uh, the predictability is completely gone. And so I think at this point, we are only able to rely on what our, you know, our government is telling us first and foremost, um, which none of us have a pipeline to Gavin Newsom. Um, As far as I I know, he doesn't even know that, you know, he hasn't even thought about endurance events and how they've completely decimated the industry. Um, But I think the other thing is that um, we are going to try to work together with each other 
to determine what the best steps are moving forward. We can certainly take cues from races that are kind of in line before ours is. Um, so, you know, for me, for Kaiser, that's, that's the next race I'm, I'm managing fully. Um, there are so many things that are going to happen before Kaiser rolls around again. And so I'm going to be in a position where I can take notes. This worked, this didn't work. This communication seemed viable. This one didn't. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, we all have to make decisions based on what we think our community, our runners, um, our board of directors, whatever we're dealing with, our, you know, Reckon Park, Golden Gate Park, um, what makes the most sense for us. And as much data as we can glean and what we know from the past, it's not a one, one shape, one size fits all. You know, there's definitely going to be people that don't receive the decisions that we make well. There's going to be some that it fits for better than others. Some of it is going to be mandated down to us. And, you know, that's not always a likable situation, but at some level it is what it is and there's nothing that we can do about it. So I think from my perspective to the participants' perspective, believe me when I say that this is weighing heavily on all of us and we're all only able to do what we think is best with the tools that we have to work with, um, which, you know, I mean, I feel like at this point in time, we're dealing with a, a really subpar toolkit that's missing, <laughs> missing a lot of tools. Well, Michelle, I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. Yeah, it was great to chat. Right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink mix before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. Go to UCAN.co slash shakeout. That's UCAN.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's SHAKEOUT25, to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>